0: If you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're beginning in verse 15, reading through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle, wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from the heart. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. So what do you do if somebody does something that's clearly wrong? Well, sometimes you overlook it. I mean, if you haven't read the Peacemakers book, you're supposed to. Read it. It's biblical. Ken Sandy did a great job going through the scriptures, and not only outlining what the scriptures teach on conflict resolution, but also giving very practical application for us. But there are times when a person needs to be confronted. This opening of this verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you may see a little letter there and a footnote down below. Um, some of the manuscripts do not have against you, just as if your brother sins. Well, should it be sins or sins against you? Well, if you look at the passage in Luke, which is the parallel to this, there there's not any question that it's sins against you. But the bottom line is, this also provides the process by which church discipline is to be conducted. And there are plenty of other passages in Scripture that make it clear that this process needs to be lived out among believers. In Galatians 6.1, we're told, if you see someone who's overtaken in a fault, you're to go to them and gently, humbly seek to restore them while being careful not to get sucked into the same pattern of behavior yourself. Because the devil loves to trip people up in the very area where they're trying to straighten someone else out. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the danger of trying to get a speck out of someone else's eye when you've got a beam in your own. And Jesus doesn't say, so leave your neighbor's eye alone. He says, first, deal with your problem, and then you'll be in a better position to help the other person. You've heard the expression about the pot calling the kettle black. What does that mean? Well, it means the pot is also black. Both of them have gotten soot from the fire. And the one looks and sees the other and says, oh, (laughs) look at you, you're covered with soot not realizing that it is covered with soot also. And sometimes, when we see something that someone else has done wrong, it is God's merciful way of showing us a problem that we have. Early in adulthood, when I was having to work with various personnel, I I told my wife, I'm going to start asking people who want a job, what, and this was way before we came here, I said, I'm going to ask them, what is it that bothers you most in other people? What's, what's the thing that really gets on your nerves? Because there is a very high probability that the thing that bothers them about other people is something they have a problem with themselves. And one of the reasons why it bothers us so much when other people do that is because, frankly, we hate that about ourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to ask you to give me a list of what bothers you most in other people. But I will say that when you see somebody else doing something that is really bothersome to you, you need to pray and say, Lord, is that something I'm doing wrong? Are you using them in order to show me my fault? It's not always the case, but it's often the case that we're the ones with something protruding from our eye while we're looking at other people and saying, what is wrong with them that they don't see they've got a problem? So, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. What does that that mean you don't do? You don't start going around to other people and saying, have you you seen what that person is doing? Are you aware of this? Do you know? Let me tell you what happened. That is what tons of people, even people who claim to be followers of Jesus, do. And I've been tempted before to try and be sure that, I just want to be sure I'm understanding this situation correctly. If so-and-so did such-and-such to you, would you find that to be wrong? Well, shame on you. If you believe there's a problem, prayerfully and humbly go to that person privately, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And then you can go out and tell everybody. No. You keep it private. But, if he will not listen, then you take one or two others along so that every matter may be established with the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was the law that God had laid down in the Old Testament. You didn't do something just on the basis of one person's testimony. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, there are only two places where Jesus refers to the church before if you will, the church has been established. But clearly, Jesus knew what he was talking about, and he knew what was to come, and he's telling them, he's using a term. When they heard this term, they didn't think building with a steeple and, you know, cross on top. It, it referred to the gathering of believers. Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives an example of this with the church in Corinth where there was grotesque immorality. There were various sins in the church in Corinth, and Paul addressed various ones. But one particular sin was a notorious case of a man who was engaged in the kind of sexual immorality that was offensive even to pagans who were themselves sexually immoral. You know, they did this that was sinful and this that was sinful, but oh, that... That was the kind of thing it was, and this guy was still just coming to church and being a part of the fellowship and partaking of the Lord's Supper, and the Apostle Paul rebukes them. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, that guy needs to be expelled from the church. And he talks about it, I encourage you, we're not going to look at it right now, but in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about it in terms of what needs to be done. And he says, I, I, I told you you weren't supposed to have anything to do. He goes on to say, I told you you weren't supposed to have anything to do with people who live immoral lives. He said, I'm not talking about the pagans out there. He said, in order to get away from that, you just have to go to another planet, Okay. This world is always going to be full of sinful people doing sinful things. But he says, but in the church, we're called to holiness. We're called to live a life that is above reproach. We're called to live a life that demonstrates that we belong to God. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, he commands them... To exercise church discipline, and it's very much in keeping with what Jesus outlines here in Matthew 18. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, we see again what the goal of church discipline is, and that is the restoration of the sinner. We're talking about believers here who get involved in sin. They need, if they will not repent when confronted, they need to be expelled from church fellowship in the hope that they will be restored when they repent. I've shared the story before, but I think it's been a while. The Peninsula Bible Church in Van Nuys, California, had a noted scientist who was a member. They were very happy to have him because it gave credibility to them that this noted scientist was a part of their church. But it turned out that this noted scientist had a secret sinful life. He knew it was wrong, but he was keeping it under wraps. When he was caught, he was confronted. They did it according to Matthew 18. They confronted him privately. The church wasn't told. He profusely apologized, repented, he seemed, and, uh, and said, you know, I know it's wrong, and I'm so sorry. Thank you for confronting me, and uh, just, you know, pray with me, because I, I definitely don't want to live like that. Well, praise God. But before too long, he was caught again in the same sin. Well, they confronted him again, and this time he said, Look, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. It's who I am. I can't change. And so with sadness, they expelled him from the fellowship of the church. And he began to travel around telling people, what a bunch of hypocrites, the folks at Peninsula Bible Church were. Ray Steadman and those other guys are just a bunch of Pharisees. They don't love people. They act as if they're perfect, and they're not perfect. Let me tell you, all of us have problems, but they expelled me because they think my sin is worse. After a year, he was just gaining audiences. And the church was being slandered. Five years later, he was still out slandering the church. Eight years later, he's still out slandering the church. Ten years later, he came back broken, came back to the elders of the church and said, Please forgive me. I can't run from God anymore. It was wrong of me. Please forgive me, pray for me, help me. That's the goal. But five years out, it didn't look like it was working. And eight years out, it didn't look like it was working. It was 10 years before that guy repented. Now, Jesus said, it is proper, if the person will not repent, to ostracize them, to expel them. Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. <clears throat> what do we do to pagans and tax collectors? Oh, we shoot them. No. We, we hang them up with a rope. No. We go around talking ill of them. No. We just don't treat them as if they're part of the fellowship. Tragically, in America, people think they're doing the church a great favor if they join. Okay. Because we act as if, you know, basically... The church is a business and I'm a consumer and I'm looking for the church that makes me feel good, meets my emotional needs, uh, gives me what I'm after. I want the right kind of music that appeals to me and I want the right kind of preaching that appeals to me and I want the right kind of programs for my kids that appeal to me And because really what it's all about is me. I want to be in a place that I enjoy. And of course, the answer is no, you're supposed to be in a place that makes you miserable. You're supposed to go to a place that just utterly crushes you and weighs you down and you go in and and you leave always more depressed than when you got there. No, no. But the point is, it's not about getting your needs met. It's about obeying God and serving others. Is that clear? Because we don't just need someone to spoon feed us stuff that they've already chewed up and now it's, it's like a bird feeding its babies. Okay, Have you ever seen a bird feed its babies? Kind of gross when they're little, you know? Mom kind of predigests the food and then spits it up into the baby's mouth. And it looks like Gerber. Anyway, um, that's what a lot of preaching is. It's just somebody else pre-digesting the food and then vomiting it back at the congregation and hoping they get something out of it. We need to grow up. We need to get beyond the milk stage. We need to be able to digest stuff that we chew ourselves. Is that clear? Yesterday, you heard a message that my son preached that included a lengthy section showing from Scripture that those who are saved by God do not lose their salvation. It was marvelous, but it was point by point, verse by verse, and a whole lot of folks find that hard to digest. Now I didn't hear any complaints from anybody and I couldn't see your faces so I don't know if you were sitting there looking like this is good, I'm learning something. Or if you were sitting there looking like you often do, which is... (laughs) Come alive! God has ordained that his people would come together and our being together, he shows up. And we are strengthened. And to be a part of that is a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. And so to be expelled from the church is not, I'm out of prison. It is is you're coming out from the protection that God affords his people. You are out, vulnerable in a much more powerful way to Satan's attack. And it even speaks of turning a person's body over to the enemy to be destroyed. Wow. Why? In hopes that his spirit might be saved. Years ago, I had to introduce the concept of church discipline to the church in Atlanta that I'd been called to pastor. I arrived there only to find after I arrived, my first weekend that I arrived, that the wife of the youth pastor had left her husband in order to move in with one of the youth who had just graduated high school. Horrible. Horrible. So I... Spoke with the young woman once. The young man wouldn't talk to me. And the young woman said, if you have any messages for me, you can leave them with my parents. Here's their number. The youth pastor was willing to take her back despite her sin. He wanted to keep the marriage together. He wanted reconciliation. She said to me, he has done nothing wrong. I'm not leaving him because... Uh, he's somehow been unfaithful to me. She said, I just don't love him anymore. And apparently, she thought she did love the other young man. So I said to the church, you know, if she will not repent, two of the deacons had already gone to her to confront her and appeal to her to repent. She had refused. Her husband, of course, had tried first. And so I said to the leadership of the church, we're going to have to exercise church discipline. And they said, what's that? It was in the church covenant, but when I showed them the church covenant, a lot of them were like, what's that? They're unfamiliar with the church covenant, unfamiliar with the biblical concept of church discipline. And so I explained it to them, and they said, oh, you can't do that. You'll, you'll split the church and ruin your career. That was the concern. I said, I can't think of a better reason to get fired than that I'm doing what God commands. Well, when I called, there was a major turmoil among the leadership of the church. I called the girl's mother and said, she's been dealt with privately. She's refusing to repent. She won't take my phone calls. She told me to leave a message with you. Would you please get word to her? And I told the parents of the young man, would you please get word to him that unless they withdraw from the church... Now, they weren't attending, but they were still members, and therefore under my responsibility as a pastor. I said, tell them if they will not withdraw, that we're going to have to bring this before the church publicly, and they'll be expelled from the membership. Everybody thought I was crazy. But the mother of the girl said, I'm so sorry, we're just distressed about what's happened, I understand Um, I'm so sorry that you've walked into this situation as the new pastor. She said, "I I will tell my daughter. And I said, thank you. Well, her first phone call was not to her daughter, it was to her husband. And of course, she was somewhat hysterical on the phone, which was very upsetting to him. And he reacted like a man. He called me. And he said, I'm warning you right now that if you go forward with this thing, I will sue you. He was a good Baptist who went to another Baptist church. I said, sir, I'm sorry. I know this is upsetting. And I said, but I have to do what Scripture commands. And he said, you better not do anything about this. You just leave it alone. I said, sir... On the authority of God's word, I can tell you right now that if you try to come between your daughter and this church doing what God commands, God will smite you. And he said, we don't have anything else to talk about. Hung up the phone. Before cell phones, you could do that. Hang up the phone. You had a receiver, you'd slam it down. It was very dramatic, made you feel better. So he hung up on me. And... I didn't go tell people about that conversation, but he did. He called several of the leaders in my church and told them what this young guy had done and said. He said, God's going to smite me. He was dead within 48 hours. Suddenly, my deacons all thought that church discipline was something that they needed to learn about. What happened? This is true. It's God's word. We need to obey it. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. And we need to treat one another as if what God says matters and as if we matter to each other. So, Jesus lays out what you are to do. But then, he doesn't stop there. He says, we're supposed to forgive each other. If someone sins against us, Peter wanted to know how many times do we have to forgive? Jesus said, not seven times, but in this translation, 77 times. In other translations, it's 70 times 7 if you're going to worry about which translation is right, you've missed the point of both statements. I mean, can you imagine forgiving somebody and saying, well, it's 73 right there. Okay, Just a... They do that four more times. I don't have to forgive them anymore. Is that what it's about? Not at all. Not at all. Jesus tells this story... About a man who owes such a huge amount of money that there's no way in the world he could repay it in his lifetime. Okay? Not a chance. Millions of dollars is what he owed. And so his master was going to put him in prison and sell his wife and children into slavery. And the man begged and said, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. There's not a chance. It wasn't like his master said, well, okay, as long as you're going to pay it back. The master knew he couldn't repay it. So the master canceled the whole debt. He didn't reduce the man's debt. He canceled the man's debt. You understand? Just totally wiped out. Okay. He went from owing an impossible sum to owing nothing. Is that that a happy day? Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. All that guilt gone, utterly gone. I'm completely forgiven by God. Jesus said it is finished. He used an accounting term that means the debt is paid in full. And so, the man goes out, and he sees a guy who owes him a trifling sum. Not much money at all. And he says, hey buddy, listen, something really wonderful has happened for me. You know that money that you owed me? Forget it. I'm forgiving your debt. Is that what happened? No. He grabbed the man by the throat and he said, pay up. Pay me everything you owe me. And the guy said to him exactly what he had said, To the master. And he says, No, I'm not going to be patient with you. I'm not going to wait for you to pay. I'm putting you in prison until it's all paid off. Well, other people saw this and they said, That ain't right. And so they went to the master and they told him what the man had done. And the master said, Oh, well, that's a shame. It just doesn't seem very nice. No. The master had that guy brought back in, and he said, you should have forgiven the one who owed you after what I did for you. Because you didn't. You're going to be put in prison and tortured until your debt is paid, which means you're in prison for the rest of your life being tortured. Okay? Okay. It would be terrible if God did that to us. Jesus says, that's what your Father in Heaven's going to do to you if you don't forgive others. Jesus came and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. How can we not forgive those who've wronged us? Now, I can't close this without saying, remember, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. It doesn't mean when you forgive somebody, you've got to be their buddy and act like, you know, everything's good. It isn't always good. Especially if they won't even acknowledge what they've done. But as far as our heart toward them, we've got to forgive so that we are no longer looking for how we're going to get back at them. We're not looking anymore at, you know, making sure that uh, they get... But, you know, if I can't punish them, somebody else needs to. There is so much evil in this world, it'll eat you up if you're carrying a scorecard. But if you just forgive and turn it over to God, knowing what he promises, and that his vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Very interesting to hear Mr. Zelensky, Prime Minister of Ukraine, saying through the airwaves to Mr. Putin. You cannot hide from God in a bunker. And that is the truth. Putin is 70 years old. He needs to be thinking about what's gonna happen when he dies, because he is gonna die. I don't know when he's gonna die. And one of my friends from Ukraine prayed for Mr. Putin to be saved. Not to save Ukraine, which he also wants to see, but because he knows that even a guy like Putin, who doesn't deserve forgiveness, needs to be forgiven, or he's going to spend forever in the lake of fire. And folks, that's true of every one of us. All of us deserve God's wrath. Jesus bore God's wrath for us. And now he commands us to forgive our brother from our hearts. What if he's not my brother? What if he's not a believer? Do I have to forgive even my enemies? Yeah, you have to love them too. Mm, mm, mm. Where does that love come from? Only from him. Call on him and say, Lord, I can't live like this in my own strength. You're asking me to do what's only possible by your Holy Spirit. Lord, please cleanse me, fill me, live your life through me. Manifest your kingdom in this world through your people. Thank you for loving us when we were your enemies. Thank you for paying the debt that we owed. Help us, we pray, to trust in you and do what you say. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.